Okay, if you had to sum up the, the overarching theme of Genesis so far, what would you say? Uh, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 35 today. But if, if you've been following us through the text, you, you know that the, the whole point is that God has promised to bring forth a seed that will destroy the work of sin, destroy the curse that has uh, gone all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. And, and we have traced the line of that seed, that promised seed through Seth, Noah, Abraham, Isaac. Uh, and of course, now we're coming to the end of Jacob's uh, account. Uh, through each generation, there have been, you know, of course, obstacles that tried to hinder the promise. Uh, from being fulfilled. We've seen it uh, seen it in almost every single chapter of Genesis. Uh, uh, I would probably uh, characterize the overarching theme of Genesis is God protecting the seed, God protecting the promise that he made in the very beginning. We'll see that all the way uh, if we continue through Exodus. You'll see it through there as well. And, and in fact, through the rest of the Bible, uh, throughout all of these families that we've looked at, throughout all these people that have bore this promise, there have been uh, attacks from outside. You know, people and armies tried to destroy the seed from the outside. Uh, there have been attacks from the inside as the people of God themselves, uh, through their own sinfulness, have, have almost hindered the fulfillment uh, of the promised line, the, the line of the seed. But over and over again, of course, God has protected his word. He's protected his, uh, his promise. And that's pretty much what we saw in the last chapter, Genesis 34. Uh, God's man, his promise bearer, uh, Jacob, did just about everything he could possibly do against the will of God. Uh, chapter 34, if you listen to that section, was uh, it was just absolutely grueling. There, there wasn't anything good about it. There was, there was nothing worth emulating. There were no heroes involved at all. Uh, Jacob seemed almost like he he cowered in a corner through the whole terrible, you know, the terrible events that took place in his family: daughter being raped, sons becoming murderers. <clears throat> I, I mean. He was living where he wasn't supposed to live to, to begin with. And instead of leading his family in God's will and according to God's word that God had given him, the commands God had given him, he, he laid back and just led his family spiral toward toward darkness. Uh, now, the question you have to ask is, what would you do in this situation? I mean, if you were God, I mean, if you were God, what would you do? Uh, you're God and the man that you had raised up and protected through Laban's treachery and through Esau's vengeance. Uh, you protected him from all of this, from his inside sin and from the threats from outside. If this man repaid you by going back on everything that he promised to do. Remember back in Bethel when Jacob was running away from his brother Esau, God appeared to him and promised to deliver him and bring him back to Bethel. And in Genesis 28, 20, uh, Jacob made a vow saying, God, if you'll be with me uh, and you'll keep me in the way that I'll go and you know give me bread to eat and clothes to wear uh, so that I come back to my father's house, he said, uh, then you'll be my God. And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, it shall be your house there in Bethel. And I'll give you a tenth of everything I have. And instead of doing any of that, after God protected him, even remotely what that looked like, Jacob went to Shechem instead of Bethel. And he got caught up in all the sins of the people of the land. Uh, what would you do if you were God? Uh, I would chunk Jacob uh, out and start over with someone else. I would kick him to the curb immediately. Jacob has failed and lied after God has been good to him. Uh, but of course, you know that that's not what God does. And to be honest, you and I should be thankful that God does not ever go back on his promises. Um, in verse one of chapter 35, let's just start reading the text and we'll see. Uh, uh, after Jacob and his family pretty much made a mess out of everything, God speaks to them in verse one. 
God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Now, in this statement, God is renewing again the promise that he made at Bethel and the command he gave Jacob at Laban's house. You remember when Jacob was at Laban's house in chapter 31, God said, I am the God of Bethel where you anointed the the pillar made of out of me. Now arise and go from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Uh, Of course, Jacob didn't obey. He, He went to Shechem instead. But after all this, God is calling him again. God's calling him to get back on the path that he's supposed to be on. It's amazing. After all that Jacob's done, after all that he has done, all that his family has done, God says, I want you to get up from the place that you're in, and I want you to go back to where I told you to go in the first place. Jacob is receiving another chance to follow the ways of God and fulfill the purpose of God. He is calling Jacob to fulfill the vow that Jacob made to him at Bethel. I mean, what a picture of grace that is. The people the people God calls in Scripture are not the best, not the strongest, not the smartest. I mean, let's face it, they aren't even good people. But, but God calls them by grace and places his promise upon them. And, and I don't know about you, but that gives me a great comfort and assurance knowing that, that my standing before God is not based on my performance, but it's based on the righteousness of Christ and the promise of salvation through him as a promise bearer. God is going to protect that promise. He's going to be faithful to his word. And you better believe that Jacob has grown. I mean, he has probably grown through all the tragedy and and sin that has plagued him and his family. I mean, this time, Jacob obeys God's call. When God says, I want you to get up, look, look at what you've done. Look at what disobedience has brought to you. Now, I want you to arise from where you are, and I want you to get back to where I told you to be. And Jacob is going to stand up now, and he's going to lead his family toward the living God. He's been nothing but passionate in the last chapter, but now he takes responsibility. He isn't going to be perfect from here on out, so I don't want to make it sound like uh, Jacob is now the perfect man of God. We're going to see later in the dealing with his sons, the same fear, the same favoritism, same disobedience later in his life. But at this point, he's going to walk in the faith of his God. Uh, Look at what he tells his family here. Verses two and three say, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. In these verses, Jacob, um, Jacob leads his family. I mean, he leads his family by giving three imperatives. Uh, First, he tells them they need to put away the foreign gods that are among them. Uh, The word for foreign gods here is teraphim. It's the same word we saw for the little idol that Rachel stole from Laban's house. Uh, These are household gods that are, you know, the people of the land worshipped. Now, the question that immediately jumps to mind is where did these little idols come from? Where did these foreign gods come from? Uh, You know, of course, we can't know for certain. The text doesn't tell us, but we can definitely make an educated guess. Uh, Some of these gold and silver idols, you know, no doubt came from the sons plundering the city of Shechem. Uh, They took all the wealth and everything valuable. So it's pretty safe to assume that these idols were among them. And, uh, you know, as we mentioned before, Rachel brought one of these that we know of with them from Laban's house. So, you know, it could have spawned from that. But more importantly than where they came from, I I want you to see the fact that the fact that Jacob says this to them here, put away the foreign gods, that should alert us to the fact that this family 
has been straying from God in in ways that we don't even know about until now. I mean, we've seen the effects, right? We've seen the passivity of Jacob, the murderous rampage of his sons. Uh, you know, we've seen all of that played out, and we we've we've shook our heads at them and said, "Oh, look at you know they're they're messing up really bad here. They're sinning. They're falling further and further." But now we find out that there has been idolatry going on in this family. Uh, Jacob has allowed these foreign gods, these these uh, this idol worship to go on in his family. And that has been probably, I mean, I'm assuming here, but that has probably been a major factor in the down, the spiraling down of this family. Uh, Jacob is going to bury these idols before they leave for Bethel. So he isn't just collecting valuables here. He isn't just saying, okay, give me all your, your valuable little thingies, your trinkets. Uh, he's purging this family of its sinful idolatry before they travel back to Bethel. He, after he has seen the effect of disobedience, he's seen the effect of sin on his family. He realizes, uh, evidently that you know, he has got to make a change. He doesn't just say, he doesn't just say, okay, God has commanded us to go back to Bethel, so let's all load up and go. No, he says, before we leave, we have to put away these foreign gods. We have to, we have to put away this sin that has so infected our family. Uh, the second imperative Jacob gives them is to purify themselves, change their clothes. Now, specifically, this is, you know, probably due to their uncleanness from touching all the dead bodies and murdering everybody in the city. Uh, you know, but it's also because of the idolatry that's been going on. But but more generally, I think it it, it it's become clear that the family has become defiled in their practices and in their walk. Now we know what's been going on in secret. They have been secretly worshiping idols. They have sec- been secretly uh, hoarding these, you know, uh, idolatrous figurines. Uh, they have to recognize that this is sin, and they have to repent of this sin. So Jacob, by telling them to purify themselves, he's saying, hey, you're defiled. Uh, He's not just saying, hey, guys, y'all stink, change your clothes. He's saying to them, look, because of this, you have defiled yourself. And so you have to acknowledge that defilement. You have to purify yourself. You have to change your clothes. Jacob's calling them to admit that they are unclean and to turn from their defiled state as they head back to the house of God. Uh, Bethel Bethel means the house of God. Uh, And the third thing that he says is that they are going to go back to Bethel so Jacob can build the altar of God. That's what he had promised way back uh, when when God uh, appeared to him in Bethel in chapter 28. Jacob understands that he is going back to fulfill the vow that he made. Uh, the reason I say this is because it's because of what Jacob calls God here, the names that he names of God. It says He says that this God is the one who answers him in his distress. Now, God's been faithful to answer Jacob when he prayed to protect him. Every single time. I mean, he prayed at that from the hands of Laban and God intervened. We saw God appear to Laban on the way to kill Jacob and stop him. Uh, he prayed to God when he uh, when he uh, was afraid of his brother Esau and, and God answered him by uh, by intervening on his behalf, changing Esau's heart. Each time God has showed up big and delivered Jacob from those who would harm him. But Jacob now knew something else about God. He knew from experience that this God has kept his word. When he said that, that, that he would be with him wherever he went, that's what God promised. Remember in Bethel in chapter 28, he says, I will be with you wherever you go. God has
has truly been with him. And that's what Jacob says here. This is the God that answers me in my distress and the God who has been with me wherever I have gone. Jacob now is not just trusting in the promise. He knows it from experience. Uh, even when Jacob was acting like a Jacob and not an Israel, in, in that verse, Jacob says, then let us arise, go up to Bethel so that I can make an altar before the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Jacob has, uh, has learned from experience uh, of God's faithfulness. And you know, sometimes we have to learn that lesson. God allows us uh, to falter. He allows us to fall. He allows us to do probably some of the stupidest things in the world. He allows us to to chase our own desires, if we so will, to understand not only the repentance that's required of us, but also the faithfulness of God's promise. The The gospel shines ever brighter when it's uh, pictured up against the, the black backdrop of sin. Uh, we, we see the beauty of who Christ is and what he's done for us when we truly recognize how unholy and how uh, wicked we truly are. And, and so the family is going to respond. Jacob has taken a leadership role. Uh, he said, "Look, we're going to bury this stuff. We're going to we're you're going to give up these gods. You're going to recognize your defilement and purify yourselves, and we're going to go back to Bethel." And so verse 4 says, "So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods they have and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem." So uh, the family turns over all their teraphim, all their foreign gods. And the text says that they turned over their earrings as well. Now, these weren't just uh, regular old jewelry as if, you know, you're not allowed to have earrings in, in Bethel. Uh, but more than likely, these were, were pieces of jewelry that were connected to the worship of their idols and probably what they, uh, what they uh, confiscated and plundered from Shechem. Uh, there have been, we can't know for sure, but, but archaeologists have found talismans and pieces of jewelry in Palestine that, that celebrated the moon god. So, so it's not beyond the realm of possibility. Uh, I don't think that we can deny that these things were part of the plunder. Uh, so what we're seeing here is not just a call for the family to stop. Uh, uh, it's not just a call for the family to stop their idolatry. Jacob is calling them to make a break from the past by burying these things under the oak near Shechem, under the terebinth tree at Shechem. Uh, before, they, before they leave to head to Bethel, they're going to leave the past behind and remove this stuff from their midst. Jacob is not going to just say, hey guys, we're going to stop worshiping these little idols. No, he says we have to remove them from our presence. We have have to remove the temptation from our midst. We have to get rid of it, and he buries it in the ground. That's something that's so hard for us today. We know that there's temptation all around. Uh, just you know, you could talk about television, you could talk about music, you could talk about uh, you could talk about a host of things, entertainment. You could talk about uh, lots and lots of different things. Uh, but the reality is that if we're serious about fighting temptation, we don't just we don't just resolve in our minds to fight it. We remove it from our presence. We remove it, uh, remove the temptation from our uh, from our view, from our sight, from our mind, from whatever. It, whatever it may be. And that's what they do here. That's what Jacob does here. Jacob has definitely turned around, hadn't he? I mean, 
the the amazing thing is that once again just as he has always done I, i'm telling you it's amazing to me that god protects jacob again in verse 5 it says and as they journeyed a terror from god fell upon the cities that were all around him so that they did not pursue the sons of jacob now after all that jacob and this family have done by you know deceiving and killing the men of shechem plundering the city taking all the captives i mean you would think that the people of canaan would want retribution but but the text tells us explicitly why they didn't. It says that a terror from God fell on them. It wasn't just that they were afraid of Jacob and the sons. It, it was God's protection that caused this fear. It, it's, it's very interesting to me because even after Jacob's sin and his failure to go where God told him, even after the shame and the failure, after his family turned their back on Jacob and uh, or on Jacob's God and, and, and he refused to stand up for his God, the Lord still kept his promise. I mean, I would have allowed these people to chase Jacob down just as consequence for his actions. But that's not what God did. God promised at Bethel that he would be with Jacob wherever he went, and he is still keeping that promise. So, so Jacob and his family finally come to where they were supposed to be the whole time. They come back to Bethel. Verse 6 and 7 say, and Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the hand of in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. After all that happened in Shechem, Jacob is now finally back where God has called him in the first place. God told him the last time that he was at Bethel he'd bring him back to this land, and now here he is. So Jacob does what he vowed to do. He builds an altar. He worships God who's been good to him. He builds the altar where God had appeared to him, and he gives an offering there. And this altar, we've seen it before in the life of Abraham and Isaac. The altar was to worship God, and it was also to, to declare God's name to the people of the land. Uh, what gets my attention in all this is that Jacob again names the place, but it's a different, it's different name than before. The last time he was here, he named the place Bethel which means house of God. Uh, you remember that when, when Jacob marveled at the place, he, he said, surely God is in this place. Uh, you remember we talked about how Jacob kept thinking somehow that these places God kept appearing to him were, were sacred in and of themselves. They were holy in and of themselves. But this time Jacob has grown in, in, in all kinds of different ways. Now, instead of just calling it Bethel, the house of God, he calls it El Bethel, which means technically and literally, God, the house of God. So it's almost like he's now focused on God himself rather than just just the place, the Bethel. After all, I mean, after all he's been through and, and, and all that God's done for him, he is, he's come to appreciate the God of, of grace and faithfulness. Now, that's a lesson for those of us who are in Christ. I mean, how much has God done for us? Uh, how often have we failed and been restored? How often has God shown himself faithful to his word, to his promise to us in Christ? If you're like me, you know that God has, he's done some amazing things. Just continuing to call us his children, even though our, our hearts are sinful, is amazing to me. So there's absolutely no excuse for us not to worship and be thankful to God. So Jacob and his family have returned, but that isn't going to be the end of the story. So it, it, this is not they ride off into the sunset and all live happily ever after. In the middle of Jacob's return and God appearing to him again, the author of Genesis, Moses here, 
places some strategic information in this chapter uh, about the family of Israel. Now, this chapter shows us a kind of transition as the older generation is passing away and the focus is going to be less on Jacob and and more on the more on the sons of Jacob. So, from here I want to show you uh, as we start in verse 8 um, this is going to get kind of confusing, okay? It's going to get kind of confusing when I start talking about these names. You need to keep the names uh, of all these people separate. We have Jacob and we have Rachel, right? You remember Rebecca was Jacob's mom and Isaac, Jacob's dad, okay? And you got, of course, Abraham and Sarah. Now, you're going to see some blasts from the past right here uh, come in in these verses, but don't. Uh, you need to keep the names separate. When I started thinking about this, and writing about this, uh, we, we, we kept getting Rachel and Rebecca mixed up. Rebecca is Jacob's mom. Rachel's Jacob's wife. Okay, got it. What we're going to see here is the passing away of the older generation. And he's going to do that sporadically through this chapter by showing the death of Deborah. We're going to see in verse 8. And then at the end of the chapter, he's going to show the death of Isaac. Now, verse 8 says, And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, remember who Rebecca is, Jacob's mom, died and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. Now, this verse kind of comes out of nowhere. So this is why I wanted to show you that this is, it could get confusing here. Now, if you're asking who in the world is Deborah and where does she come from? I mean, don't feel like the Lone Ranger. This is the first time her name has been mentioned. She is Rebecca's nurse. Now, make sure you get that. Like I said, it's Rebecca, Jacob's mom, not Rachel, his wife. This is the nurse that helped raise Jacob. Now, of course, no doubt she's as old as dirt now, but but the question remains, where where did she come from and why is she just now being introduced into the story? Uh, we haven't actually been given her name before now, but we have seen her before. Uh, remember when Abraham's servant went to find Isaac, a wife, and he came back with Rebekah. Make sure you get the name straight. Remember that as in Genesis 24. When they left in Genesis 24, 59, when, when Abraham's servant left with Rebekah, it says, so they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. So this is the nurse that went with Rebekah back home when she married Isaac. Now, uh, the one thing that I, we don't know how she came in to be with Jacob here. It's not told to us. The, there are lots of theories, and I could, we could talk about all those, but just to save time, I'm going to tell you what I think is the most plausible. Uh, how did Rebecca's nurse get with Jacob uh, and his family? And the thing I think is most plausible is that when, when Rebecca sent Jacob away, remember after he pretended to be Esau and stole the blessing, when Rebecca, Rebecca sent Jacob away, he, she told him in Genesis 27, 45, she said, when Esau's temper cools, I am going to send for you. And I am taking this to mean that she sent her her nurse, Deborah, to be with Jacob, to call for Jacob. Of course, we know the story about Laban and, and how he indentured himself and all those kind of things. So I tend to think that she sent Deborah, the, the nurse, to Jacob. But it doesn't really answer all of my questions about why this verse is here. I want to know, what I want to know is why Genesis records the death of Deborah, who we've never heard of yet, the nurse, uh, but Genesis is not going to record the actual death of Rebekah. 
I mean, it's noted that Rebecca died in Genesis 49, and we'll get to that, but the account of her death is never given. The account of the deaths of Leah, uh, of Bilhah, of Zilpah, those uh, Jacob's uh, other wife and his two servants are not mentioned in Genesis either. So why does, why does, why does it tell us here that Deborah died? Now, I think there are two reasons. Uh, first and most importantly, we're seeing a transition here as the older generation is dying off. At the end of this chapter, we're also going to see that Isaac's going to die. The older generation's passing away, and Jacob's sons are going to you know, become the focus of the book of Genesis from here on out. But there's something more. Remember that this is the nurse that raised Jacob. Uh, this was, she was there when Jacob was born and she raised him. No doubt she was a mother figure to him. And we're told in this verse that, she, verse that she's buried under the oak at Bethel. And they named that oak Alan Bakuth, which means oak of weeping. Her death brings Jacob to weeping. I mean, even, even here in Bethel. Now, you're supposed to say, you know, Jacob is back on the path of God. He's led his family. They've put away their idols. It's all going to be good now. Everything's going to be wonderful, and it's all puppy dogs and rainbows, and they ride off into the sunset. But that's not the way it is. Even after coming back to the path of God that God has laid out for him, there's still pain. There's still suffering. There's still loss. There is still the curse The curse that the seed is supposed to destroy from the very beginning of Genesis is still active. This this death of his, this mother figure in Jacob's life, Deborah causes him sorrow. It causes him to weep. He buries her and names the place the Oak of of Weeping. Uh, There are still times of weeping even when we are in the center of God's will. Do you see it here? He has put away all those things. God has protected him from the consequences of what happened by protecting him from the people. And he has gone back to the house of God. Everything should be wonderful now. The writer of Genesis wants us to know that the curse is still in effect. The curse is still on the, on the, on the earth. And the seed has not yet destroyed uh, the effects of that curse. And, and so we see this older generation passing away. Uh, so... Uh, Jacob has indeed returned to God's purposes. Uh, And he has, you know, we now see he's returned to the very presence of God. Uh, Even as Jacob weeps over the death of his nurse, God appears to him again here in Bethel and reaffirms the promises that were given to him all those years before. In verse 9 and 10, it says, and God, now remember, he's come back to Bethel. Now he's experienced this loss, this weeping, this, this mother figure of his died. And is here that God appears to him. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and blessed him. He blessed him and he said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called him Israel. Now, uh, another question. Wait just a minute. I mean, did, haven't we heard this before? Uh, the reality is, yeah, we've heard it before. But here, God is not just going over the same old ground. He's not. This is not just a scribal error where you know just another scribe has put in his his two cents, showing us the changing of the name of Jacob. Uh, there is a need here to reaffirm the promises of God. Jacob and his family have strayed at probably about as far from God as you can get, even to the point of idolatry. Jacob himself needs to understand that the promises of God are still powerful. They're still affected, effective in his life. We saw, we saw the same thing with Abraham. I mean, 
God made promises to him, and, and then a test of faith came. And, of course, Abraham passed the test by offering his son, and then God appeared to him and reaffirmed the promises. But here, unlike Abraham, Jacob failed the test. Jacob failed in just about every way you can fail, but God still comes to him the same way he did Abraham and reaffirms the promise anyway. Because the promises of God do not depend on your performance. They depend on the faithfulness of God to his word. Even in the depths of the most horrible sin, God called Jacob back. Verse 1 said, he said to him, you get up from where you are and you get to Bethel. Go back to where you where you belong. He tells him again that your name is not Jacob, it's Israel. Why does he do it again? Because Jacob hasn't been acting like an Israel. In the last chapter, we saw Jacob has definitely still been acting like Jacob. <clears throat> but, <clears throat> but in God's eyes, he is still not a Jacob. He is still Israel. Who he is in God's sight depends on God's word, God's decree, and God's command, and God's promise. It doesn't depend on Jacob's performance. Jacob needs to hear that today. He needs to hear that as God has brought him back to Bethel, that that uh, you, your name is still not Jacob. It is most certainly Israel. Now, that's amazing. The, the question that breaks into my mind when I think about that is how can this be? I mean, how can that be true? How can that be real? How can God, who is holy and righteous, call this low-down man back to himself and say that you're still Israel? The answer to that question is in the first part of the next verse, the, God, the speech that God makes to him. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 11 says, <clears throat> And God said to him, I am God Almighty. This is the first time in the book of Genesis that God uses the term El Shaddai, the God Almighty, to describe himself. He is, he's almighty. He is all powerful. Even the sinfulness of his people cannot thwart his word and nullify his promise because he is the sovereign God, God Almighty. And then the rest of verse 11, <clears throat> God reaffirms to Jacob the promises of both Adam and Abraham. Make sure you get that. Now, God is going back over. He's going all the way back to Adam, a, a, a nation. <clears throat> excuse me. In verse 11, the rest of verse 11, he says, God said to him, I am God almighty. He said, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your uh, come from your own, own body. Kings shall come from your own body. Did I skip part of that verse? Here, let me look. Genesis. This professionalism right here. Verse 11. Yes, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Where have you heard that before? Be fruitful and multiply. That is the initial command given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That's God's purpose. That's God's purpose in creation. He desired that his image, his image bearers would spread his image over all creation. And of course, you know, you know what happened. Adam failed and then Noah failed then Abraham failed. Uh, but God promised that a seed would come and would deliver the creation. And that line is still being used in Genesis by God here in the story of Jacob as he is says, I'm going to build a nation from Jacob's son. And it is from that nation that he will bring forth the promised seed who we know is Jesus Christ. And now 
now, today, 2017, we who are in Christ are also called to be fruitful and multiply. Of course, you know, not in the same way, don't get crazy, but, but we as the church are called to spread the perfected image of God throughout the creation as we do what? As we go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, baptizing them, name the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded. God's purposes in the very beginning of Genesis are still being fulfilled today. That's what he says in verse 11. Be fruitful and multiply. He goes all the way back to the command given to Adam and reaffirms that to Jacob and says, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. That's the promise given to Abraham. The line of the seed is still Uh, is still in effect, even though there's still suffering, even though the curse is also still present. We've seen Deborah die. The line of the seed is still in effect. In verse verse 12, he, he reaffirms the promise of the land. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Now, we've already talked about the fact that the writers of the New Testament find fulfillment of the land promises in the new heavens and the new earth to come. See that in Hebrews, but we also can't gloss over the fact that God did indeed give the sons of Jacob the promised land in Palestine during the days of Joshua. Joshua 21, 43 through 45 says, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers and they took possession of it and they settled there and the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one One word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. That's Joshua 21. Then in Joshua 23, verses 14 through 15, Joshua said, And behold, this day I am going the way of the earth, and you know in all your heart and all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass and not one thing has failed thereof. Therefore it shall come to pass that as all good things are come to you which the Lord your God promised you, so shall the Lord bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you off of this good land which the Lord your God has given you. So the land promise is given again to Jacob. And after all this, Jacob worships God, verse 13 through 15, it says, Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Okay, so here is where the Hallelujah Chorus starts, and from now on, everything's perfect, right? Well, No, not exactly. Uh, Though Jacob has been brought back into the presence of God, the promises have now been reaffirmed to him. That doesn't mean that there are no more trials in his life. There's not, that doesn't mean there's going to be no more suffering, no more failure in Jacob's life. Jacob just thought it was hard when Deborah, his nurse, died. Now he's about to lose the one thing that he loved more than anything else in the world. He's about to lose Rachel. Verse 16 through 18 says, Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, uh, Rachel went into labor. And she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Ani. But his father called him Benjamin. If you want to say it in Hebrew, it's Benjamin. So they, they leave Bethel. 
they head toward Bethlehem, which is Ephrath. Uh, and on, on the way, she, she gives birth to another son. Now, in the midst of the suffering of childbirth, she calls him Ben-Ani, which, which means son of my sorrow. But Jacob calls him Benjamin, which means son of the right hand. Now, the right hand is always the favored one, and we're going to see later in the text of Genesis that Benjamin is going to be Jacob's favored son. Uh, but while giving birth to Benjamin, um, while giving birth to Benjamin, she names him ben, uh, Ben-Oni, the, the son of suffering, because she's going through this hard labor, and she, she dies. Verse 19 through 20 says, Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, uh, that is Bethlehem, and Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb, it is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. This hit Jacob like an anvil to the head. We're going to see the effects of his losing Rachel played out as he interacts with the sons later on. He's going to definitely favor Rachel's sons over the rest of them. Uh, in Genesis 48, which we're probably going to take a long time getting to, Jacob tells us how he was feeling at this moment. In Genesis 48, 7, it says, As for me, when I came from uh, Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died. To my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. And there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, to Bethlehem. And I buried her on the way. So he tells us in, in Genesis chapter 48, the sorrow that hits him when Rachel dies. So here's what you need to see. And we're not finished yet because there's going to be, like I said, his father's going to die at the end of this chapter as well. So even though he's back on the path of God, even though he's back in the will of God, he's returned to his first love and his God is with him, protecting him. The promises are, are reaffirmed. There's still suffering and sorrow. And, and we're going to see that, that sin in this family has not taken a break either. Uh, in the next verse, look, look at what happens next. Verse 21 through 22. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Notice he called him Israel now. He journeyed on, pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now, Jacob clearly, clearly is going to favor Rachel's sons. That's his favorite wife. Uh, uh, Joseph and Benjamin are going to be his favorite sons. Now that Rachel has died, uh, Perhaps this is what we're thinking. Reuben, who is not Rachel's son, but Leah's son, he finds that he has he is being passed over. Now, remember, Reuben is the firstborn. Reuben is the firstborn son. So he's probably thinking, you know, this is this is, uh, you know, he, he's favoring these other two boys and they're going to get all the inheritance and they're the preeminent ones. Reuben lays with Bilhah. Bilhah is Rachel's servant. Remember, uh, uh, the, to Laban gave uh, Jacob, I'm getting the names mixed up myself, Laban gave Jacob uh, with each wife, Leah, he gave him Zilpah, and with Rachel, he gave him Bilhah. Those were their servants. So Reuben lays with Bilhah, uh, Bilhah's uh, Rachel's servant, uh, jo uh, Jacob's concubine. Now, this is not about lust and sex. Uh, because Bilhah is an old woman right now. It's actually, that's actually kind of gross. Uh, Reuben is laying with his father's concubine to assert his right to be head of the family. You see the same ploy made by Absalom to take over David's house in 2 Samuel 16. You see the same thing uh, in, in dealing with um, 
Ishboeth, I think is his name, uh, the, one of the sons of Saul. Uh, you see the same thing, laying with a concubine, asserts dominance over the household. He's challenging his father's right to rule the house. And so this, uh, th- all this, even all of this sin, suffering and sorrow, can't thwart God's promise. But even being in the will of God, what have we seen already? We've seen that death and suffering from the curse is still there. He is, has lost Deborah. He's lost Rachel. Uh, we probably won't get to it, but the end of this chapter, he loses his father Isaac. Death is still there. And sin is still there in his camp. Even after they have put away their gods and purified themselves and gone back to Bethel, you're thinking, well, now they're going to be perfect and they're never going to sin again they're never going to falter again. That's not the case. The Reuben uh, asserts the right to have preeminence in, over the family. Uh, he tries to seize authority over the family, but it doesn't work. He loses his rights as the firstborn. In 2 Chronicles verse, chapter 5, verse 1, it says, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. He lost his preeminence as the firstborn. He lost the inheritance. Um, Makes sense. He lost the inheritance. Remember how uh, inheritance was passed down. The expectation of the promise was supposed to be from the oldest, from father to the oldest son. And we saw Jacob slip in there and take it from Esau. And now we see if we're following tradition, if we're following the way that things should go, Reuben should be the line of the seed, shouldn't he? Uh, but he defiled his father's couch. Therefore, he was disqualified as the firstborn, as the, the inheritor. Um, Jacob will say this when he gives the blessings to the son in Genesis 49. Uh, in Genesis 49, verse 3 and 4, it says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Jacob revokes the preeminent firstborn status from, from Reuben. So uh, the, the rest of the chapter, I'm, I'm not going to read it because we're, we're already going a little long. The rest of the chapter, before we see Isaac's death at the end, Genesis returns us to the, geneal- the genealogy. You know, over and over in Genesis, we said these are the generations of, and then these are the sons of, and you'll have the genealogies list. Now, we've taken a long time looking at the life of Jacob, but we're going back to that pattern. He gives us the genealogical survey of these sons. Uh, we've taken a detour in the history, uh, but we're coming back to the lines of the serpent and the lines of the seed now. In Genesis chapter 36, going to be a survey of Esau's sons, the line, uh, not the, the line of the seed, but the line of the serpent. But look at what we see here. I want to show you this one thing before we go. In this genealogy, we're going to get a glimpse that the seed is still alive. Uh, We're going to get a glimpse that the seed promise, the line of the seed is also still alive. So what we've seen, let me put it all together for you. I know this is probably way too long. Uh, What we've seen is God has kept his promise and brought his promised uh, seed, the line of his seed back into accordance with his will. But we've also seen that the curse and sin and death and sorrow uh, are also still active. So what we've seen is there is really so far been no resolution to the problem that God is trying to solve in in 
all of scripture, but especially Genesis. But what we see here in this genealogy is that the line of the seed is also still alive. It's still active. And that foretells for us that the promise is still to be fulfilled. Reuben, if you look at those, uh, if you look at the the genealogy, look at it with me, uh, you see just a few names. Reuben is the firstborn, right? He forfeited his right to it. We also see the next two in line, right? Simeon and Levi. Uh, they've also been rejected because of their murder of the, the Shechemite men. Uh, and so you have Reuben, Simeon, Levi also have been, all have been rejected from having preeminence in the family. So who's next in line? Look at verse 23. It's Judah. Who is the tribe which Jesus comes from? The seed. You guessed it. He's the lion from the tribe of Judah. The seed promise is moving forward despite everything that has happened. So what you and I need to see here is that God is faithful to his word. Even when our own sin and failure threaten the promise, even when everything around us is falling apart and there is sin and there's death and there's sorrow and there's all the things that plague us through this life, God's promise to his promise bearers will stand forever in the heavens. If you are in Christ, you have that promise. He is the, he is the line of the seed from the tribe of Judah. He is your righteousness and there is nothing in heaven or earth that can change that.